0: Hello and welcome to Fire Science Show episode 36. Great to have you here. When I've started this project, one of my missions or goals or aims, however you call it, was to reach with fire science to people who not necessarily seek it but could really really benefit from it. And one such a group is definitely firefighters and it was always important for me to reach firefighters with with the message of fire science and it's not easy and and those of you uh, heroes on the line i am very thankful for you that you listen to the show and i hope you talk about it with your colleagues and help me spread that message but overall it has not been easy and i know there's institution or A group of people who are excelling at delivering the highest quality fire science to firefighters, who excel at listening to firefighters, identifying their needs and more than anything work with them in building fire science. And I find that very impressive and something that I would aspire my own research was. So, uh, what can I do? I have invited them over the show. That group or that mysterious institution is under Ritter's Laboratories Fire Safety Research Institute, ULFSRI. And I've invited the director of that institute, Steve Kerber, and a research engineer, and my good friend, Craig Venschink, uh to the show to talk a bit over on, on how fire science is done at their institute and how it is delivered to the broad audience. So it was definitely a great talk for me. I hope it is also beneficial to all of you. And one thing that is a clear take from this episode, their databases, their repositories, their online courses, all the resources they share in their website or through their archives are so valuable, so great, so you, you have to check them out. And I hope this episode inspires you to do so. So yeah, without any further ado, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Firesize Show. My name is Wojciech Jinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm here today with two great guests. Both are from UL Fire Safety Research Institute. Dr. Steve Kerber, uh, who's the vice president of Underwriters Laboratories and the director of Fire Safety Research Institute. Hello, Steve. Great, uh, great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Bodrik. More than welcome. And uh, the, my second guest is Dr. Craig Venscheng, He's a research engineer at Fire Safety Research Institute is also a data wizard and he's personally responsible for me picking up Python. So thank you, Craig. That was a hell of a ride. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm really, really happy to to have you both in in here. Uh, I have a thing for people who earn their living by setting things on fire for science, obviously. And it seems that your institute is the king of, <laughs> of burning things down for a living. And I admire and I'm jealous of the scale at which you guys are working. I would love to hear maybe there is a short variant of the story, how such an institution comes to life and how does it thrive in in this world field of commercial testing and not really this altruistic approach to research. So I'll try and tell the short version of this, but I think to tell the short version,
1: I'm going to go back to the 1800s because I think a lot of your listeners don't understand the origins of Underwriters Laboratories. So if you go back to 1894, the World's Fair was being held in Chicago. And around that time, electricity was being introduced and there were fires occurring all over the place. And the insurance industry was trying to figure out what to do, because if these fires kept happening and they kept getting losses, they were not going to survive as an industry. So our founder, William Henry Merrill, got called from MIT and he was a electrical engineer, and uh, he came out to Chicago, and his first office was a temporary setup in the hayloft of a Chicago fire patrol station. So as the horses and firefighters would go out of the firehouse, he would go with them, and he would determine what caused these fires. And out of that came the idea that Well, if we're gonna prevent these fires, what we need to do is have standards. We can't just have anyone puts whatever product they want into the marketplace and we learn by trial and error. He came up with the idea of, well, no, we need standards and we need to test these products to these standards. And then we need to make sure those products continue to be made by those standards. And then we'll have safe products that will be more reliable and not have a lot of fires. Fast forward to today's time, Underwriters Laboratories is multiple entities. Craig and I sit in the nonprofit research institute. At, that is the nonprofit arm of Underwriters Laboratories. A lot of the people that see the UL in the circle and the testing—that's mm-hmm. uh, a for-profit subsidiary. So that's a completely different legal entity. We we do not sit there. We sit in the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And we are one of the research institutes. We're one of four the fire safety research institutes. So we have a team that's completely dedicated to studying the world's unresolved and emerging fire safety risks.
0: That's pretty cool. And I think that it's it has started with electricity um caused fires and now probably 125 years later, you're still dealing with the same things with uh, like PV panels and electrification and batteries used in houses. So it's it's kind of funny. These problems do not go away even after 125 years of research.
1: You're exactly right. And I I think that I constantly have to continue to tell that story is that everybody thinks fire has been around forever. It's been figured out. Fire is a very young science and there's Mm -hmm. so much to learn, which is why this is such a great field to, to be
0: in. Even if you you don't have to go 125 years back, go 50 years back and think about tools we had. None of the CFD modeling we have today, none of the zone models we have today, none of the uh, laboratory even tools we have today. The ability of, of doing research is unprecedented and yet the number of questions is just rising. Uh, I also know that some time ago the focus was on the firefighter um, safety and most of the actions were towards increasing uh, firefighter knowledge, uh, working on, on redu- reducing injuries. That's I assume now with the rebrand to fire safety, the mission has grown up. It's bigger than than just that. Is it still an important part of FSRI? It it is, and it's the most important
1: part. We grew out of just doing firefighter safety research and still do. I mean, that's the primary thing that we do. That's our most important stakeholder group, I would say, is the fire service. They need all the help they can get, and I think they deserve the best research out there because of what they do for all of us around the world. And this past year, we evolved to the Fire Safety Research Institute and sounds minor, right? We change one word, but the reality is that we've broadened our scope tremendously. Uh, Everything is now fair game. So we're doing a lot more in fire forensics. We're doing a lot more in wildland urban interface. I know you've talked with Sarah McAllister and and Michael Golner and all the great work that's happening there. We're trying to contribute to that area as well. Fundamental fire science, fire modeling, we're doing a lot more. But as you know, that all fire issues, at the end of the day, they're a fire service issue as well. So we need to keep that group mm-hmm. of people educated and as, as smart as we can. And I mean, we, we started the firefighter component in the early 2010s and they continue to be incredibly important. We've covered a lot of ground, but there's so much more to cover.
0: No, I, I don't think these topics are exclusive to each other. They're part of, of one world and developing tools or understanding of fire physics is definitely useful for firefighters as, as well now I've I've brought in the introduction that you guys are doing fire experiments on an unprecedented scale but that needs some justice Craig I, I know you've been like burning houses for five years or so now tell me how does um ULFSRI experiment look like like wh- what's your guys doing in the lab because many people would have skewed idea of what a laboratory looks like? And uh, yours is nothing like a thing you would find in Google first page when you write laboratory in it.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I I would say our laboratories anywhere and everywhere, you know, we've been blessed with the ability to take it on the road with us. So we've we're able to do acquired structures. And I'll touch on that in in a minute. Meaning that we can burn structures that are ready to be demolished, that were built for something else. But then we also have you know, the ability to test in laboratories like our corporate headquarters in Northbrook or at some fire training academies, like one that we, we use a lot in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of the Philadelphia airport. The, the interesting piece is, is I think you touched on is the scale. So for a lot of this firefighter research, there's value and there's a lot of our work that touches on multiple scales from laboratory bench scale to the full scale house, which is what our stakeholders want to see is, yeah, it's great that you can do this at the small scale, but what happens when you start to burn a real house? And so we have over the years, one of our engineers has designed and kind of continues to evolve our test trailer. So we have a 30 foot custom built trailer, which houses our data acquisition, our video acquisition all the hardware you would need to modify structures to make sure that, you know, we can get the most out of our test system. So our data acquisition system scales up to about six to 700 total channels of data. On a truck. Yeah, so I mean, it's That's it's, it's movable. We typically will have upwards of 15 to 20 gas analyzers. So we have custom built racks that one of our other engineers has developed so that we can measure gas concentrations throughout structures. And then we can, we have the capabilities if we want, like we, we did towards the end of 2020, where we can live stream some of these experiments, really give a feel for the scale. As part of our, our coordinated fire attack project, we were burning some strip mall units in Ohio. And uh, those units went up to 80 feet deep by 30 feet wide. So among the larger open air structures that I, we've seen in, in literature, we've burned them and we've seen, you know, traveling fires within there with real fuels I know it might not be the, tip, the the traditional definition of a traveling fire, but you load those with typical commodities and, and you'll see that that localized flashover within the compartment. The scale of that is big as anything. And we'll pull up with our trailer and, and, and instrument the houses in a few days and burn. And we don't burn, as you kind of alluded to, it's with the fire service. We don't want to burn just to burn and watch. We want to burn and measure and then be able to determine some conclusions, some takeaways that we can give back to the fire service to help improve their tactics.
0: I, I know there are some listeners who, who in their mind will be now going, they did what? It's, <laughs> the, the scale is unprecedented. As And as someone who's do, trying to do this, I, I I cannot do a half of this in, in my lab and you do it outdoors. That is amazing. But I also know, and then Steve, this one is, is to you full scale tests are hard to set up they're like take long time and they're really difficult in controlling variables obviously often we come to conclusion that okay burning this house is is not feasible in full scale because we will not be able to get answers because we cannot control the environment so how you guys are working on that i guess through the scale of your research which is many repeats um good control over the boundary conditions. I find that impressive, but how do you plan such immense research campaigns to control that?
1: You're absolutely right. It's critical. The big question, so why why full scale? Why are we doing this full scale? And the answer to that is, well, because of our stakeholders. We learn early on that if you're going to do research with the fire service, which means you're going to bring them in, you're going to make them part of it, You're going to teach them about measurement science. You're going to teach them about variable control and and all of those things. If they're going to believe anything that comes out of it, they need to see their reality and their work environment in the experiments that you're running. And could we learn a lot at scale? Could we learn a lot with modeling? We do. We we absolutely do. And that influences what we do at the full scale as well. But it's incredibly important that the fire service sees something that they can, understand and is representative of where they work which is why we've done in the full scale and when it comes to variable control you're absolutely right the budget only goes so far and we've been blessed in that we have had significant budgets for some of these projects so the the u.s has a program the assistance to firefighters grant program that has made essentially a million dollars u.s plus available for some of these projects which allows us to build full-size houses. And if we want to control the environment, for example, no wind, and we want to have a certain temperature to start, uh, then we do it in our laboratory. And we build those houses in our lab, and then we design our experimental series such that we vary one variable at a time. So when we started looking at horizontal ventilation, for example, you pick a fire location or two, and you understand right off the bat that's like, all right, well, if I pick two, that's I get a half and a half and I'm now giving up some other choice. And we go into it with typically 16 to 30 full-scale experiments in a particular series. And then we're making hard decisions from that point on. And it typically has to do with, what do you really wanna get out of this? And what does the fire service really wanna see? And and in many cases, it's not what they wanna see, it's what you educate them and what you come together as, what are we really looking at here? And most of the conversations, as as Craig has had many of these, come down to, okay, you want to look at that? All right, well, then you're giving up these five things. Is that what you want? It's like, oh, well, I didn't realize that. Or we try and cover multiple variables with a lot of instrumentation, which is another route to go. But these are tough. I mean, you want to run hundreds, but you wind up only being able to run, say, 20.
2: And to piggyback on on your comments, Steve, one thing that I've Come to appreciate over the decade plus of of doing fire testing with the fire service is you know as we've evolved these projects and we've stepped through different variables like steve said the horizontal ventilation to say a vertical ventilation to a forced ventilation and then we we did some coupled ventilation suppression experiments and the fire service was like well we want to see these in the field now that you put it in the in the real world where we've got weather where we've got some unpredictability from the non-controlled atmosphere of the lab, what happens? And it shows the physics generally still follow, right? We know that the physics of fire don't really care if you're in the lab or outside. We just introduce some some additional variables mainly. But what's, what has struck me is now that the same stakeholders are saying, well, hey, can we get back in the lab? Because there's too many variables in the <laughs> field. You know, we, we couldn't do this because the houses were all different or Yeah, you got to burn a strip mall, but the four units were all slightly different sized, so now we can't control this. I'm like, part of me is like, it's wonderful to hear that evolution of the stakeholder group start to recognize what it means to conduct experiments and what what an experimental matrix really looks like if you want to try to cap some really strong takeaways and need for replicate experiments. So now, when we we have these kickoff meetings with our tech panels, they're saying, "Okay, let's run some replicates, you know, to start, so that we can really start to to hammer out what our changes are going to be when you start making some changes." I'm like, this, "This is wonderful! It's so exciting to see that change within the folks that we're working with."
0: I sometimes have this trouble reaching my message with with the world of practitioner firefighters. Is sometimes they they downplay in a way what has been done in lab. That in, in reality, it looks completely different. Or they try to give these human features to the fires, like that fires grow or develop, the fire behaves this way. You know, like if it was this metaphysical thinking behind fires, where I have science to say that it behaves this because of that, but in other conditions, it will behave completely different. And, and somehow, you know, it is very difficult to break this mold to reach firefighters with, with this, let's say lab science. And Steve, you came from this environment. You were a firefighter. You were a fire chief. Then you became a fire researcher. I I guess that that was the order of things. Maybe you were always a fire researcher in your heart. How was it for you to discover this aspect of of this structured fire science, this controlled boundaries and the amount of knowledge you can actually get from that? And I think it's my personal opinion. You can learn more from controlled variables and even scarce outcomes than from just witnessing a random fire w- without comprehension of what happened.
1: Spoken like a true scientist. I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. Is that, I mean, you got to build trust. And I think that happens over time. That's not given, that's earned. And yeah, I mean, I grew up in a fire service family. So I was around practitioners my entire life and, and then found the pr- fire protection engineering program at the University of Maryland. So the cool part there was they've got a program where I I wasn't living on a dormitory on campus. I was living in and running a fire station and a very busy fire station, relatively speaking. So I would get experience from a practitioner's perspective on nights and weekends. And then I'd be going to school learning theory during the day. And it was marrying those two together that I think made the connection for me. There was some stuff that would easily makes sense. And you could take back to first principles in the classroom. And then there was some stuff that's like, oh, wait a minute here. This doesn't exactly jive with what we're talking about in Drysdale's or Quinteria's book here. Let me break this down and try and understand this a little more. Mm -hmm. So that upbringing really helped me see the firefighter side of things, which allowed us to couple the science side a little better. Because you're right. I mean, you you in your mind can take your experiments from whatever they are to multiple scenarios in reality. Many firefighters can't do that. They don't have that foundation. They don't have that theoretical understanding. So you got to walk them there. And we've been walking them there. And I say they, the fire service is an incredibly fragmented group of people. We've got more than 30,000 fire departments in the United States. I've had the Huge pleasure of meeting firefighters all over the world. I mean, Simone comes to mind in Poland, mm, yeah. where to me, he represents the entire Polish fire service. He doesn't. I mean, he he represents what he's where he's influential, but you guys have the same situation that we do. It's that every firefighter is not the same. They all, They all have different backgrounds. Some are volunteers, some are career. But the more you know about them, the more their reality, the better chance you have of speaking their language and walking them where you need them to go to get better at their profession.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And and as you mentioned, Shimon is doing great work on on doing that in Poland. And I I not say that I have a full comprehension of what FIRE is and what FIRE behaves, because if I was put with a hose in a situation, I would probably don't know how to act well. And we come from different backgrounds, but essentially we both want uh, the same outcome which is less damage, less fatalities, less collapsed buildings and a fire safer world. And I find it important for us fire scientists to understand the implications of the work of of a line firefighter. Because sometimes we are dealing with abstract concepts that have no connection to reality. And in our papers, we write, this is important because firefighters will be able to do this and this. When it's not true because they will never do that. Because we are unable to convey our message, right? That's
1: a, the, the biggest issue I have in reviewing papers is when that connection gets made and it shouldn't be made. So whether it's a fire safety journal or fire technology or whatever the case is, it's very simple to say, oh, we did this. And because we did this, it's going to benefit the fire service with no real context of how. Maybe they talked to one person or they read a magazine or they watched a video or whatever the case is. It doesn't mean that their science is not good. And that may have good practical application, but to make those leaps, I think is disrespectful to the fire service as a whole. And we need to do better of, I guess, what Craig and I would say, doing research with the fire service, not for the fire service. So Mm -hmm. if you bring them in and make them part of the research, then you're much likelier to have a realistic application versus if you do it for them, I learned about you, I read something about you, and therefore my research is going to benefit you. That's crap. And that that winds up in a, in a bad spot. I mean, that's why, I mean, I enjoy working with Craig. I mean, Craig hasn't been a firefighter. However, he has been around it so much and understood it so much and worked with them so much that he might as well be. I mean, he hasn't drug h- hoses down hallways, but he knows their work environment better than they do. And they've taught him why it matters and how to make the connection. So Craig can make connections that I can't make from a scientific perspective, but ultimately it's about understanding that application well enough. Otherwise, you might come across as insulting versus a partner. And we want people that are doing fire service research to do it as as a partner and not treat fire service as some unapproachable stakeholder.
0: I think at UL, you guys are hitting the nail in sharing the knowledge. And I really appreciate that aspect of your work. And I mean, your Academy uh, project is absolutely amazing and uh, I'm, I'm going to link it because uh, there are so many programs and online courses that you guys provided. It's just astounding. But what what really kicks me is that you have this repository of your experiments. You have a webpage where you can literally click an experiment. There's a, the drawing of a house where the experiment was done. There's a timeline on the side saying what happened in the experiment. There are icons that you click you you see the temperature plots. There are three sixty cameras that show what happened. There is video that that shows what was there and there's an explanation on why you have done that, what happened, and what you have learned and this repository it just goes on and on and on like endlessly i, I don't know if it's all of your experiments, but there there's a hell of them there's a lot. And I, I find this like really a valuable way to reach this type of audience because you cannot expect that firefighters in their free time will be reading fire safety journal. Some of them may be sure, yeah, but like having this type of communication where they can open, okay, this experiment had the door closed and this is the temperature, whereas this experiment had doors open and this is the temperature, everything else was the same. It, it gives you this feeling of what happened Craig, maybe maybe you can tell more about what was your goal when you guys were starting to share like this. Certainly. So as Steve was was talking about how we work with
2: the fire service, one of our early challenges was as we're writing these technical reports with them, they wanted to see the data, which is exciting for us, right? They want to see all of the plots and all the graphs so they can say, okay, well, I want to make my conclusions as well, independent of you, so that we can and then compare. Or that uh, if I've got questions, we said, well, how do we go about doing this? What What is a pathway for us to start to share this even while we're writing or before we even started to write some of the, the papers? And so we started building some interactive websites because we're like, well, we've got a floor plan. We've got um, we've got these graphs and Python is a pretty powerful tool. <laughs> <laughs> And so we started building some mock-ups internally and then said we would share them with the panel as the process would go along. And then when the reports were out, well, we've got this whole interactive set. Let's clean it up. Let's add some more depth to it. And let's share it with everyone. If, if the the 20 firefighters we were working with or the 20 fire investigators we were working with on the project found this to be valuable, then the broader community should find this to be valuable. And I think one of the greatest things about working here is that we are encouraged to share our data, to make things public. You know, we are a charity. It's it's an obligation to share our work. And that is just a a fantastic kind of ask of us, right, is how do you put this data into a form um, that is digestible for your stakeholders? And so sometimes that is the interactive graphs, and we can even go a step further and make those graphs from static to even further Mm -hmm. interactive, and you can hover and zoom and and highlight. But then there's also groups of stakeholders that want to actually see the raw CSV files that come out of our data system. They want to be able to interact. You know, There there might be some fire protection engineers or some firefighters that say, hey, hey, I want to graph this. I want to start to compare these. And so we have that opportunity as well. And so I think the the, the big key is designing the output to meet your stakeholder, because not every stakeholder, and maybe not even every stakeholder within a particular stakeholder group is going to want to digest the the information the same way. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's how do we build the right output for the right group of people based on that particular project. That's a fun challenge to have, especially when we can share it
0: all for free. I know that you're impact driven, like you, you don't have key target indicators in terms of money or the number of buildings burned. I, I guess not. <laughs> How do you find this versus, let's say, academic publishing? I, I guess these things are complementary to each other. But what was the feedback of the, of the firefighters or the fire industry as a greater whole? What, what feedback do you receive on sharing this in this way?
1: We need to meet people where they are. So each group might want a different output. And one of the things that we learned early on was that interactive online training programs were an effective way for the fire service to interact with our information. So you can give them just enough and then you give them the opportunity of you want to dig into the data. Here it is. Dig into it. You want to skip that part and go right into what we call tactical considerations, which, again, is a very careful Mm -hmm. word. We're not telling you what to do. We're giving you things to consider as part of your your work that you may be able to implement it, you might not. But here it is presented in a kind of factual way, and you wrap your environment into it and decide if you want to make a change or not. Firefighters don't read peer-reviewed journal articles. Some of them do, but that's incredibly important to us as well. I mean, we want to make sure that our research meets the rigor of our peer group, in the scientific community. So we go through and do that as well. But as you know, a whole lot of detail gets lost when you write a journal article. So we also write and spend a lot of time writing technical reports because we also feel that if someone wants to build on our research or replicate it or modify it or whatever the case is, we need to give them enough information that they can do that. So if you don't know all of the instrument locations and all of the timing and all of that stuff, then you can't do that. Or let's say you want to model it. We want people to be able to take have enough information that they can accurately model because it's also part of our mission to make sure that the modeling mm-hmm. tools get better. I mean, if you make the modeling tool better, everybody benefits. So it depends on the stakeholder group. Some people want magazine articles. Some people want to be told what to do. Some people want to learn it for themselves. So we want to get it all out there in various different ways. And, and I wish that was a simple task. I mean, that's the hardest part of our job is in some ways running the full, burning a high rise in New York City is easier than writing the technical <laughs> report that comes out of doing such a thing. But it's all fun.
0: I'm asking these questions because you are doing it very different from, let's say, the, the scientific industry. And I actually think your model may may be working, like you're on something. (laughs) If you truly want to reach this particular group that in a way is excluded from the general scientific communication, whereas the science is claiming that it's targeting this group, then something is is not working well. And I I think by openly sharing, that's an amazing feat. And if it's complemented by your academy, by your online courses, because I assume that Also, around the research, you build your online course uh, portfolio, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: So, for example, our our coordinated fire attack project,
0: where we went into the field and did,
2: you know, 40 full-scale experiments. I think we traveled something like 4,100 miles over the course of a year and a half to these different parts of the country to be able to, to conduct the experiments. We ended up publishing, you know, three technical reports for that project and then just recently we published our second training course in in support of that project with a third one currently under development so you know we did three different structure types single family homes kind of a multi-family home like a three-story apartment complex and then the commercial structure with an open floor plan strip mall and so within each report there's a technical report or within each component of that project there's been a technical report and an online training that has been built with members of that project technical panel. So not only did you know, we film this to highlight some of the tactical considerations that Steve was talking about, but we also brought back those technical panel members to have roundtable round table at the kitchen table type discussions with them regarding how they interact with this. So we can better learn to both make our work more applicable in the future, but also so when folks take these training courses, they hear from their peers. So it's not just engineers talking, it's engineers and firefighters having that discussion together. And then what we'll do is as those courses are getting wrapped up, you know, we're going to work to release all of that data, you know, similar to our our fire investigation portal on our website. And then also write some journal papers on this work. There's a lot of interesting phenomena that, that we've measured and captured and learned. And so we'll start to then write those components of the project up for academic journals. But the priority was to get the work and that information to the stakeholders that the project was designed for. So it's let's you know put the fire service first for this project so they get this key information. And then we continue down the full stack of communication. And that's been just, you know, it's it feels like the project <laughs> has never ended. I think we started it in 2016, maybe, right when I joined UL. And, you know, we're still going, but that shows when we do projects at this scale, it's not just burn, film, and walk away. There's so much depth to these experiments that sometimes gets lost, I think, when you see some of the incredible photography and videography of the experiments. You forget that there's a whole lot of science that's that's going into them. And so we're we're still got a little bit of technical debt, so to speak, that we're catching up on because – you know the, the work keeps coming, the projects keep coming, and it's it's still we still got to publish. Well, we
0: still want to publish and get this into to all avenues. I, I like how you're uh, prioritizing this. I, I would also put down uh, publishing until uh, the end, but but for other reasons, I just it's just painful to write papers. Now, now to s- switch around uh, the topic a bit, because given the fact that that I have you both here. You are both involved in experimenting with fire, Steve, for more than a decade. How do you see the modern challenges? I'm, I'm really intrigued and how that influences the line firefighter work, the fire professionals and the authorities when the world is changing on such an unprecedented way. I, I have a feeling that fire science has a difficult time catching up, you know, with the growth of technology and we're generating Problems or issues like way, way quicker than we are able to to solve them. What's your view on that? Do you, do you also feel this, you know, rush where uh, you start a project and five years later it, it may even be irrelevant because uh, stuff around has changed so much? It's a constant challenge. I mean, that's also why yeah. I think
1: Fire is so exciting because every technological advancement has a Fire component to it. I mentioned that we have other research institutes. So one of our other research institutes is the Electrochemical Safety Research Institute. So they do a lot with batteries and things like that, which I think is, is key here, is that us as fire safety engineers or fire scientists need to partner. We need to collaborate and we need to understand that, yes, fi- fire is a piece of the puzzle, but we don't have to be the center of that puzzle all the time. So we can leverage our colleagues that are experts on electrochemistry to help us understand thermal runaway, to help us understand the point of what gases are created and things along those lines. Uh, We can rely on our material scientist colleagues and our chemists to help us understand what's in these materials and so that we can do and understand the fire component better. So I think that's another, it's a lot like the university model where the challenge is to not get stuck in your own silo. The challenge is to work across your colleagues and all the other expertise that's around you to do better fire science. And that's the way our research institutes are growing is to be more collaborative, to work across, to complement each other. Because yeah, whether it's energy storage systems, whether it's photovoltaic systems, Wildland fires, I mean, you want to talk about a, a multifaceted science problem. I mean, if we think wildland urban interface is going to be solved by fire engineers, we're fooling ourselves. We're a piece of the puzzle, but we've got to work with all of the other expertise to, to truly understand and get ahead. So I think that's a, really an important learning and something that we're constantly trying to. I mean, we get fed problems on a daily basis. The hard part's prioritizing where we're going to put our resources. And you're right, as Craig is writing up the last series of experiments, I've got five more that Mm -hmm. I wish I could throw him onto. But that's where we need to grow and we need to diversify our expertise and we need to mentor and coach and grow the next group of fire safety engineers. Because I'd I'd take 20 more Craig's, but I can't do that overnight. It takes time to get
0: I love how you put that because it, it. the theme of breaking the silo of fire protection engineering or fire science, whatever that is, that many of my previous guests have mentioned. I had Brian Mitchum, and he was saying the exact same thing in regards to how buildings are designed and how we shape our cities and environment that you cannot do this independently yeah. of other branches. And here you say that fire science can close itself in a silo, whereas it should not, because you gain so much from being open and diversifying this, interacting with other branches. And, and true, again, if you as, as a fire researcher would solve the issue of burning of lithium ion battery, maybe you would create a thousand issues related to their energy capacity or the way how they are used. And it would be just pointless solution to the problem that, that you thought that existed, but it, it was not there in the first place.
1: You're absolutely correct. And, and everybody can't be experts in everything. Uh, We've got to work together, much like we were saying about the fire service, right, is you do research with them, not for them. And if you do research with them and you take that same model, you can apply it to any problem. You do research with the electrochemists. You do research with the folks that are experts in climate to understand wildfire smoke exposure.
2: And then even, I guess, maybe further compounding the challenges is even within fire, you've got a range of expertise so you've got your, your folks who, who understand modeling and you've got folks who understand experimentation and you've got, you know, the folks who understand material degradation, pyrolysis and hearing prior guests like Sarah McAllister or Guillermo or Michael Goldner talk about how diverse their teams are, right? You know, as we have been growing FSRI, our expertise has grown to include analytical chemists and more pyrolysis expertise because the scale of fire, even within the confounds of the larger term of fire and fire safety, the expertise needed to solve some of these problems is diverse. Uh, And then you add in like Ben Ralph talking about working with architects and the other built environment, it it gets really complicated really quickly. And to operate in this world with some blinders, not in anyone's really best interest, we've got to be cross-disciplined and open to all expertise to really solve some of these these hard challenges.
0: And given that the um, fire safety is such a multifaceted problem and the interactions with, with many different branches are so common, what do you think about seeking a, a common language or a common understanding of the issues so, so we are communicating in a way that is constructive? I've listened to some of your talks, Steve, and I, I, I know This idea of creating even a vocabulary that is common among firefighters is a challenge. Is is it also something that your institute is working, like standardizing this, or maybe not even standardizing, standardizing is a big word, maybe unnecessary word, but building up something that that promotes this mutual understanding between branches. I, I think that's critical for science going forward.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the common language, and we talk a lot with the going back to the, the fire service, we kept talking about how fire dynamics are the common language, that you, you can't make up your own physics, you can't make up your own chemistry. So whether you believe it or not, at the end of the day, there's things that are absolutes. And that has allowed, in many ways, the ability to have conversations around the world. I've been a part of a a group called the international fire instructor workshop and that's where i met simone and we've got representatives from many countries around the world and at the end of the day we all speak different languages we all use different firefighting tools different tactics and stuff like that but at the end of the day the fire doesn't care the fire doesn't think so if we can all be grounded in fire dynamics then we can have an actual conversation versus getting caught up in a lot of the other things which could vary so that that common language is important. I think that if you go back to Drysdale's book in 1985, I think that was a, a tremendous point in time where some of these definitions started to get written down so that we could work from the same definitions. Different efforts since, I think, I mean, we could sit here and talk about the definition mm. of flashover till we're blue in the face. And I think there's a lot of leeway in a lot of these things that we consider definitions, but the more we learn from a science perspective, the more we learn, hey, maybe we need to do better or learn more about or change particular definitions.
0: I agree. We could argue about these definitions for ages, but a, a common language is also something necessary to convey the message. And your institute is doing great work to, to sharing this approach through, through online online courses. So for the end, I really wondered, where are you guys going? Like, what's what's the hot topics for you now what are the activities that you're planning for the next year, two, five, ten, maybe? Well, the, the biggest place
1: we're going is we're, we're scaling. We are going to be hiring a whole lot of folks. So if you're out there and you're a fire protection engineer or similar, or you're interested in fire and you cover some other scientific discipline, then uh, we're looking. We've got a, a lot of folks that are in the queue that are going to be added to the team that we're very excited about. And I mean, we'll, we'll be several fold larger in the next few years than we are right now. And that will allow us to tackle a whole lot more problems. That'll allow us to partner a whole lot more. We've got some international partnerships. I mean, we just announced a million dollars worth of investment in two research projects, one on understanding fire brand ignition of materials and another one trying to improve FDS wow. and computational modeling of ventilation limited fires. So that's being done in, so the modeling one is partnership with Maryland and Ghent and Melbourne, and the other one is in partnership with Maryland, Melbourne, Berkeley. So we're trying to bring the experts together, tackle some of these hard problems with larger groups. So you're going to see more wildland urban interface research. We've got a lot of fire forensics research that's going to be published and released soon. We're still doing a lot in the health space. And then, of course, the, the firefighter work is going to ramp up. And I think there's some exciting stuff trying to understand backdraft and smoke explosions better. There's things around. Craig's getting ready to put out a, a lot of great stuff on search and rescue and size up where there's measurements being made that have never been made before. So lots lots of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. Energy storage systems in garages and explosions a lot of topics that are, I think, pertinent to the fire safety world that we're going to do our best to bring our expertise and resources wow, to. That,
0: that that sounds amazing. And if you maintain the quality and this uh, public approach to all of your projects while scaling up, that is great news for fire science. And uh, Craig, uh, in the world of data science and, and fire, how is it looking uh, for you? Where, where are the new goals? That's a That's an excellent question. I think
2: you know, one of the big pushes is to continue to evolve how we uh, share our data. So, building upon what we've done with some interactive graphs and visualizations, incorporating some machine learning work within our some of our data sets, and really just continuing to share, and then then hopefully building on on our history, such that people want to work with our data sets and interact with us. I think that's kind of the big piece is we've got this history of full-scale experiments and we want to share this information with all the stakeholders that can benefit from it and so keeping things open source uh, using open source tools for processing data for managing data for version control embracing the, the modern tech stack so to speak within all aspects of our data and and management and then continuing to share it. I think that's the big piece and, and, and the most exciting piece is that, you know, we've got a couple repositories that are currently public on our GitHub and the goal is to, to, you know, continue to add to that and to publish in journals like data and brief so that they become, you know, indexed and archived much the same as one would a journal paper because I think for every journal paper we publish we should probably figure out a way to share the underlying data that went into that journal paper i think that's that's such a critical component to the success and the trust that you build with your work is basically showing here here's everything here's how we did it and it's a wonderful uh, opportunity to continue to do that
0: i also share the view that openness in science sharing the data and you know, building this, even the repeatability of the experiments. It's critical to move forward and it's not often done. So, so thank you a lot for, for coming and sharing about the mission of, of the Fire Science Research Institute in the Fire Science Show. And I'm really grateful for what you guys are doing. And I've been a big fan, but now I'm, I'm a much bigger fan. I'm happy that there are in- institutions like, mm. like that who are not chasing uh, money or or, you know, titles or medals, but seeking true impact. And I think uh, the ways you push for that impact is working really well. And I really hope uh, many people, I guess everyone heard about you, but maybe not everyone went into your GitHub or checked your online courses. And I, I really hope people do because these are very valuable resources that you share for free and everyone should at least give it a try. So. Thanks a lot for coming, guys. Thanks for having us. Absolutely
1: appreciate the opportunity. And fsri.org—that's where uh, everybody can go check all that stuff out. And thank you for creating this platform. <laughs> I think we're we're big fans as well. Uh, we've learned much about the fire science world uh, through this podcast. So keep up the good work.
0: Yeah, all, all all in the family, Steve. Thanks for for that, and all of the links to to all of the fancy things you've mentioned are in the description. And I'm sure there will be way more. Episodes with members of the ULFSRI family. I want Dan on the show. Can you arrange that? Absolutely. We can, we can make it that happen. That's cool. He's my idol.
2: What, what we'll have to do is when when it's easier to travel, get you out here and do a podcast live from one of our experiments oh, wow. or something. Yeah, we uh, could really kind of push the boundaries. You know, a bit. You know what? We,
0: we we could do that SpaceX launch uh, style fire experiment. Yeah. that would be something. Uh, let's let's work let's work work on that. Uh, <laughs> that could be cool. Okay, thank you so much and see you guys around. See you. And that's it. Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed that one. Uh, I must say, when I've switched off the record button, Craig just kept on going about their new projects and there are so, so many going. I am just astounded with the scale and quality of the fire researchers that is being performed at ULFSRI. Is, this is just amazing. As I mentioned in the intro, one thing that you need to take out of this episode is the access to the repository, which is amazing. It's full of data, full of experimental reports, full of clear information that is shared from these fire experiments that you can learn on. It's just unbelievable how big the repository is and how good the data in it is, and I highly recommend any fire engineer or scientist, researcher or firefighter to give it some time and, and check out the, the amazing resources they have prepared for you. And they're all for free and it's a part of their mission like you've heard, to, to share that data. So I think it's really great opportunity to learn. And I guess that's it for the today's episode. I hope you have enjoyed uh, this one. I hope that you liked it. Uh, mission of ULFSRI and uh, way how science is performed there. I, I hope it is an inspiration for many of us fire scientists how we can do our science better and I, I've certainly learned a bit on my own how to communicate my science so it is a bit more useful. So that's it for today and as usual see you here next Wednesday. Thanks for being here with me. Cheers. Cheers. was the fire science show thank you for listening and see you soon